Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You may be seated. You know, last Sunday we were in Daniel chapter 4, looking at uh, the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. And how God greatly humbled him until that time when he would recognize that God is the ruler of the universe and that it's God who gives the kingdoms of men uh, to whom he wills. And Nebuchadnezzar did that, and it's believed that that he was converted and he continued to reign, and as the word says, God uh, added to his greatness. And then we could have gone on this week, but we didn't, to Daniel chapter 5, where years later... One of Nebuchadnezzar's grandsons was a co-regent, co-ruler with his father, Belshazzar, and he was there in the city of Babylon. And Babylon, uh, I mean, he was a a wicked, wicked ruler, and Babylon just continued to descend into wickedness. And even though Belshazzar was aware of what God had done uh, with his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, So he had a knowledge of God, of what God had done. He refused uh, to humble himself uh, before God. And uh, he sat in the city of Babylon, which he believed to be an impregnable fortress, unconquerable. And in a drunken orgy, he decided to to mock and blaspheme the God of heaven. And you know the story. God sent a hand to write on the wall. And Belshazzar lost his life that night. And Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. I mean, God will, God is patient and long-suffering. But he will only tolerate wickedness for so long. And then there comes a point in time when he says that is enough. And he brought down mighty Babylon in one night. And our nation is, is at the, the tipping point, I believe. I think we're at a, a critical point in our nation's history. I mean, literally, I, I believe we're at a tipping point, And I, I don't know what's going to happen. But God can very well bring us down. Because we continue... Our leaders continue, as a nation, we continue to mock and to blaspheme God. Our nation had better wake up. But that's the state of the nation. What about, what about the church? What about the church at this point in time in our nation? I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that we need revival. Well, I guess there are some that would. But what about the church? What condition is the church in? 
And as I thought about that uh, this week, the Lord directed me to Revelation chapter 3. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin looking this morning at the letter to the church in Laodicea. The letter to the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, it's verses 14 through 22. I'm going to ask you to stand again as I read these verses. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Maybe may be seated. Seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters to seven churches. These letters are not symbolic of different periods of church history. They are actual letters written to seven literal churches that existed when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And these letters contain a specific message from the Lord to each individual church. And it seems that the Lord chose these seven churches because they represent the different characteristics and conditions that have been present in churches from the beginning and will be to the end. In other words, throughout church history, there have been loveless churches, like the church at Ephesus, compromising churches, persecuted churches, dead apostate churches, faithful churches, and lukewarm churches. Which means what Jesus said to each of the churches is timeless and applies to every church in every period of time. I mean, these letters are as vital and as relevant to the present day as when they were first written. In fact, of all the letters, none is more applicable to the church today, in this country especially, than the letter to Laodicea. In fact, commentators and theologians agree that if there is one church that typifies the church in general today, it is the lukewarm church of Laodicea. In fact, several commentators said they believe the majority of churches in the 21st century are lukewarm. John Stott said the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to today's church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, 
nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity, he said, is flabby and anemic, and we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. You know, Jesus warned that a church would evolve in the last days, which would boast that it was rich and prospering and self-sufficient. And we've seen that happen. As we begin looking this morning at the letter to the church in, in Laodicea, I want us to remember that what Jesus said to the seven churches also applies to individuals. Because the characteristics and conditions found in each of the seven churches may also be found in the lives of individuals. And so this letter not only applies to churches, it also has personal application for you and and for me. And so we want to be open to what the Lord may want to say to us and how this message may apply in each one of our lives. And you know, so often, especially in churches where, where the Word of God is, is faithfully proclaimed, uh, you know, we don't, we don't like to think that these things apply to us. They may apply to this guy or that guy or that person or, or that church, but man, they don't apply here. Well, yes, they do. Yes, they do. And we need to be open to what the Lord would say to each one of us as individuals. Not about your neighbor, not about your spouse, but about to you individually. Let's look now. Look at verse 14. And John begins with, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write. Each of the seven letters is written to the angel. The word means messenger. It's speaking of the pastor of the church. And this last and final letter is, is no different. It's addressed to the pastor of the church in Laodicea. I cannot imagine being a pastor and receiving a letter like this from Jesus. The New Testament doesn't tell us anything about when the church at Laodicea was started and who started it, but uh, probably, uh, like most of the other six churches in that area, it, it began as an outreach of the Apostle Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. It looks like one of the Apostle Paul's disciples and co-workers, Epaphras, who we, we learned about in Colossians. It seems that uh, Epaphras not only planted the church at Colossae, but also planted the church in Laodicea as well. And if this is true, and it seems that it is, then the Laodiceans were blessed with godly leadership in, in the beginning days of the church. Because Epaphras, as you'll remember from our study in Colossians, was a man with a servant's heart. A man who was committed to the word of God. A man who was fervent and faithful in his prayers for the people. So the church at Laodicea had a great beginning. The city of Laodicea was the ancient capital of the province of Fergie. It was part of the tri-city metropolitan area, which included the cities of Heropolis and Colossae. It was located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia in the Lycus River Valley, and it was strategically located at the junction of two main trade routes. The city was, was a wealthy commercial center, in fact, it was the richest in Fergia, the richest of the seven uh, churches, or the cities. And it, and it prided itself on three things. First, it was known throughout the Roman province of Asia for its banking industry. And second, it was also famous for its textile industry. A special breed of sheep was raised in the area, which produced a black, 
soft, glossy wool, which was made into to clothing and carpets, both of which were highly sought after. And third, Laodicea was also known for the medical school of Phrygia located there. And this, this famous medical school, which was associated with the temple of a pagan god of healing, developed and manufactured an ointment for the eyes, which was exported all over the world. As one commentator put it, Laodicea was a center of wealth, commerce, and medicine. It was a kind of Bank America, Macy's, and Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. And their strategic location, their three industries of finance, wool, and medicine all contributed to making Laodicea into an extremely wealthy and prosperous city. In fact, so wealthy was the city that after a devastating earthquake in 60 AD, they proudly rejected any financial aid from the Roman government to help rebuild the city. Instead, relying solely upon their own resources, they paid for all the reconstruction themselves. In fact, Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. The city and the church were alike in this way. They saw themselves as wealthy, prospering, and self-sufficient. They didn't need the help of anyone, including God. They were just fine all by themselves. I mean, the church, for sure, was badly deceived. The affluent, prideful, self-sufficiency of the city had made its way into the church. And given the enormous affluence of our own culture, we need to hear what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. I mean, we need to be shown that the wealth of our culture does not meet our deepest needs. And as we'll see, Jesus calls the church in Laodicea to rely on him and his resources rather than their own. So Laodicea was a proud, prosperous, affluent, self-sufficient city. However, there was one disadvantage to being a citizen of Laodicea. Despite its prosperity, the city did have one major weakness. They had a problem with water. Basically, they didn't have any. They didn't have an adequate and convenient source for good drinking water. And that being the case, they had to bring their water in through a series of aqueducts from two other cities several miles away. The first city was Colossae, which was located at the foot of some mountains that that had a nice runoff of snow melt. And the water in Colossae was, was very cold and refreshing. Also nearby was Heropolis, which boasted of its hot springs. The water uh, there was so hot that in some places where it came out of the ground, it was nothing but steam. So the water at Hierapolis was, was steaming hot, you know, relaxingly so. The only problem was that by the time the water traveled the six to ten miles to Laodicea, it was neither relaxingly hot nor, refreshing, or, nor refreshingly cold. It was lukewarm. And so for all of its wealth, the city had, a very, had very poor drinking water. In fact, the water was so distasteful that visitors not prepared for its tepid flavor would often vomit after drinking it. And as we'll see, all three of the, uh, the city's industries, finance, wool, and the production of eye ointment, along with its lukewarm water supply, 
come into play in this letter to the Laodicean church. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, notice verse, verse 14 again, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here in the rest of verse 14, the writer of the letter is identified, and although the Lord does not give his name, the description he gives of himself makes it very clear who this letter is from. As in his letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus did not use a description of himself taken from the vision in Revelation chapter 1 as he did in the other letters. In this letter, the Lord identified himself in a unique way with words that had a deep significance for Laodicea. First of all, he said, these are the words, if you'll notice, of the Amen. He identified himself as the Amen, which is a familiar word to all of us as Christians. But we're used to hearing it at the end of a prayer or when we want to uh, express our agreement with a statement that's been made. The word Amen means so be it or, or truly. And it comes from a Hebrew word meaning truth, affirmation, or certainty. And in applying this title to himself, Jesus affirms that he is the answer to all the promises of God. He is the truth incarnate. And as Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. In other words, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. All of God's promises and unconditional covenants are guaranteed and affirmed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. And he wanted those in the church of the Laodiceans to understand that what he had to say to them was the truth of God. And they had better pay attention. Secondly, he identified himself as the faithful and true witness. Jesus is a completely trustworthy and, and perfectly accurate witness to the truth of God. His testimony is always reliable. He is faithful to tell the hard truth. His testimony is completely trustworthy. He doesn't distort or water down the truth. He is faithful to tell the undiluted truth. And he would be faithful to tell the Laodiceans the undiluted truth about themselves. He saw the church in Laodicea as they really were. And he would faithfully and clearly reveal to the church the hard truth about their real spiritual condition. Jesus is the faithful and true witness, but the harshness of the truth is softened by his love because he speaks the truth in love. Thirdly, he identified himself as the beginning of God's creation. Now, some people have had problems with this because they take this to mean that Jesus is a created being, the first person God created. But it only takes a little honest study to find out the clear meaning. The word beginning means ruler, originator, source, or origin. It does, not, it does not mean first in sequential order. It has the idea of first in prominence or preeminence, not first in sequence. Jesus is declaring that he is the beginning of God's creation in the sense that he's the creator, he is the originator, he is the initiator of God's creation. In him, all things Consist, as Paul said in Colossians 1, for by him, by Christ, 
All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is not a creature or a part of creation. He is its beginning, its creator, its originator. Whether it be, the, whether it be creation or the church, he is Lord ruler, chief. He is the first in time and position. And the Laodicean Christians either forgot or ignored the exalted and preeminent place that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. They had lost sight of who he is and what he has done and what he is doing. And so the Lord Jesus identified himself as the truth of God, the, the faithful and true witness and the, the originator, the, the ruler of all creation. And the Laodicean Christians had an inflated opinion of themselves. In fact, they thought very highly of themselves and their spirituality. But Jesus is going to tell them the cold, hard facts. As with every church, Jesus knew the true spiritual condition of the church in Laodicea and the true spiritual condition of every member of that church. And in verse 15, notice, he begins to tell them the truth with the words, I know your works. I know your works. Now those can either be words of great comfort or great cause for concern. Right? Imagine receiving a phone call from an anonymous caller and his first words to you were, I know what you did. I know all about it. When Jesus said, I know your works to the church at, at Philadelphia, it was cause for rejoicing. But when he said it to the Laodiceans, it was cause for mourning. Having seen their works, there was absolutely nothing good to say. He saw nothing to praise or commend, not one single thing. Everything was a stench to his nostrils, an ache to his heart, and nauseating to his stomach. He knew what was really going on in the church, and what he saw did not please him. And there was something seriously wrong with their commitment. Look back at verse 15. Jesus said, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Those are such sad words. I mean, like the water in the city, they, they were neither cold nor hot. They were disgustingly and nauseatingly lukewarm. And this picture of lukewarmness would have immediately struck the Laodicean Christians right in the heart because the water they drank every single day was lukewarm. And they knew how disgusting lukewarmness was. You are neither cold nor hot. And then Jesus said to them, would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, I wish you were either icy cold or, or boiling hot. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, this text has been misinterpreted more often than not. 
Many believe what Jesus means is, I would rather you be cold and in opposition to me or hot and on fire for me. That's not what it means. Uh, it's hardly conceivable that Jesus would say to his church, uh, I would rather you, that you be cold and oppose me. So what does this mean? Well, it's better to interpret the statement against the historical and geographical background of Laodicea. Hot, relaxing waters bubbled up at nearby Heropolis, while cold, pure, refreshing waters flowed from Colossae. I mean, cold and hot water represents something positive. I mean, cold water is refreshing on a hot day, and, and hot water can be made into a warming cup of coffee or tea or, or a relaxing bath. But lukewarm water is just simply disgusting. It's gross, just like lukewarm milk. The Lord is using the lukewarm water of Laodicea as an analogy for the lukewarm condition of the Laodicean church and believers. He was saying to them, I wish you were like the cold water that refreshes or like the hot water that relaxes, but you're not. You're neither one. You're lukewarm water that is neither refreshing or relaxing, but rather is foul and disgusting. As one man said, our Lord's point to the Laodiceans is something like this. You are providing neither healing for the spiritually sick nor refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. You are spiritually lukewarm, and I will not tolerate you. And this is strong stuff. And look now at what Jesus says to them in verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will. And it means at, I'm at the point of, I am about to, I intend to spit you out. The word spit means vomit. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, he said. I mean, we know what, what vomiting is all about. We've all done it. I mean, it's a violent, uh, just a, a violent action full of force where, you know, a, a poison or, or something bad is just, you know, uh, uh, it just explodes out of our body. Our body's just, you know, doing everything it can to rid itself of this. It's a violent action. And that's what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. He said, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. The Laodicean church was just not appealing to Jesus. It was nauseating. I mean, in effect, Jesus is saying, your lukewarmness makes me sick to my stomach, so sick that I'm about to vomit. Lukewarm churches and Christians are nauseating to the Lord. And if you were to ask many people today, say, of course the church here's, uh, I don't mean this particular church, but the church in this country, of course it's not lukewarm. Just look at all that's going on. Yeah, look at all that's going on. Sure, there's always a faithful remnant, always. But it's in the minority. It's very small. And it's going to get smaller.
As I shared with you at the beginning of the message, most commentators agree that this church is the one that most typifies the church in our day, the church in our country. And so is it any wonder that our nation is in the shape that it's in? You know, in the spiritual sense, lukewarmness is really a a picture of indifference, uh, compromise. You know, lukewarmness is trying to play the middle. But it's too warm to be cold, too cold to be hot. And so in trying to be both things, it ends up being nothing except sickening and ineffective. Only to hear the words, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, if I was the one saying this, you could just completely write it off and totally reject it. But this is the Lord Jesus himself. This is the word of God incarnate. This is love incarnate. And he's telling this church, you're so disgusting that I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Well, what does a a lukewarm Christian look like anyway? Well, I don't know. There could be a number of things. Let me just mention a few. And a lukewarm Christian isn't all of these things. It could be some of these things. But a lukewarm Christian is, uh, is one who's half-hearted in their Christian walk. So they don't take the things of the Lord seriously. They don't take the Bible seriously. I'm not saying they don't read it or don't even say that uh, they, they take it. They may say they take it seriously but they don't let the Bible serve as a guide for their lives. They pick and choose what what they're going to believe and obey. Lukewarm Christian doesn't take sin seriously, at least not his own. He's usually pretty quick to point it out in others, but doesn't see it in his own life. A lukewarm Christian is, is complacent, apathetic, half-hearted when it comes to the things of God. The things of God are not a priority to him. I mean, look, we all know that what we're fervent about, what we have a passion for, I mean, we do. We find some way to do it, to get it done. But a lukewarm Christian is, is apathetic and half-hearted when it comes to the things of God. They're not a, they're not a priority. So consequently, uh, they're sporadic in their attendance. They're, they're serving. They're giving. I mean, those things are minimal to non-existent. A lukewarm Christian's witness is, is really non-existent because they have, really have nothing to share. Lukewarm Christian doesn't really take a stand for anything. They just try to remain neutral and take a middle-of-the-road position because they don't want to offend anyone. They, they don't want to be labeled a fanatic or an extremist. I mean, heaven forbid that we should be considered radical Christians, right? And really, what, what would be considered radical today is just uh, the very basics, Christianity 101. A lukewarm Christian is a, is a Christian who compromises with the world. 
They, tr- they try to live the Christian life, and at the same time, they want to enjoy all of the pleasures of the world. They're always trying to please both the world and Jesus. But you can't serve the world and Jesus. Lot would be a good illustration of a lukewarm Christian. I mean, Lot was a believer, but barely. He just made it through the fire. Lot knew God. Certainly one of the benefits of knowing God, but he also wanted the world. So Lot moved to Sodom because he wanted the exciting life of the city. He he wanted the glitz and the glamour. He wanted the best. He wanted to have a good time, be well-liked, successful. I mean, these, these things took precedence in his life. He didn't want to deny the Lord, but he didn't want to be all in for the Lord either. Though he probably wanted to give that appearance. He wanted the Lord, but he also wanted all that the world had to offer. But his lukewarmness was absolutely disgusting, even to the wicked people of Sodom. And the people of Sodom detested Lot. They allowed him to to hold a civic office, but as one man said, they sneered at his religion and were contemptuous of his sermons. And because of his compromise, you know the story, Lot lost his fortune and most of his family in Sodom, all because he wanted to have the best of this world, but also the world to come. He's just a really good illustration of a lukewarm, half-hearted believer. Let me ask you something. As I had to ask myself. I mean, does anything in this list of what a lukewarm Christian looks like describe your Christian life, your walk? What about your commitment to Christ, your commitment to God and the things of God? Are you half-hearted in your commitment to Christ? And so I guess what I'm asking is, are you lukewarm? And you know, the thing of it is about being lukewarm, you don't even realize you are. In fact, you think you're not, as we'll see with the Laodiceans. So that's what a lukewarm Christian looks like. What are the characteristics of a lukewarm church? Well, how do you get lukewarm water out of the tap? Mix a little hot water with a little cold water, right? You combine a little of each, and the result is a lukewarm compromise. A lukewarm church, like a lukewarm Christian, gets to be lukewarm by compromise. The church in Laodicea was was compromising the truth for the sake of comfort. You know, it was much more comfortable for people to attend when doctrinal issues weren't taken too seriously. And so controversial issues, difficult passages were avoided. The the teaching was toned down a little so that no one really got their feathers ruffled or was ever convicted. The church at Laodicea was a comfortable church. It was a fun church. You could go there for years and find it very comfortable, very pleasurable. Unlike their original pastor, Epaphras, the pastor who received this letter, probably taught just enough truth to salve their conscience, but not so much that you'd ever be convicted, challenged, rebuked, or corrected. You'd never have your conscience pricked at Laodicea. 
At the church at Laodicea, you'd only be encouraged, stroked, flattered with positive, affirming messages of self-esteem and self-fulfillment. It was more of a Christian club. You know, a social gathering, more like a, a country club than a church. Did the Laodiceans consider themselves to be compromising? Did they consider themselves to be lukewarm? <laughs> Absolutely not. They thought they had it all together. I mean, look at verse 17. This is what Jesus said. For you say, the Laodiceans, this is what they said. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. As I mentioned earlier, the city of Laodicea was a wealthy city, and it's obvious many of the Laodicean believers were also doing well. And the church had plenty of money. They had the respect of the community. They were popular, prosperous, polished, and proud. They were self-centered and very conceited. And their focus was upon themselves. And they depended upon their abilities. They relied upon their own resources. And they were self-sufficient and comfortable. They had the money and the members to do you know, whatever they wanted to do. And just as their city had recovered from an earthquake by its own resources, their wealth and self-sufficiency prompted them to work by their own resources, you know, rather than recognize their need for and their utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they forgot that every breath we take, every beat of our heart, every electric impulse in our brain is only by the grace and mercy of God. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being. They forgot that's how dependent we are upon Him. That's for life. And we're certainly dependent upon him to serve him. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts as he wills. But even then, we can't, uh, we can't use those gifts for the benefit of anyone without his enabling power. Without the enabling and empowering of the Holy Spirit, there will be nothing that will take place of any spiritual and eternal value. That's why we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable and empower in the church. I don't care what your gift is. Uh, if you're going to serve and do it well and please the Lord and serve the body, it's going to have to be done as you're enabled and empowered by the Spirit. You can't do it on your own. When the Laodiceans looked at their church, they said, we're rich. We've prospered. We're in need of nothing. I mean, their affluence gave the members of the church a false sense of security. They were, you know, they were, they were rich, all right, but in spiritual pride and in believing that they were to be envied. I mean, they were the opposite of the poor in spirit Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5, verse 3. There was no hunger or thirst for Christ, no deep-seated need, no desperation for God, no desire for God's Word, no burden for the lost, no sense of needing to grow spiritually. There was no dependence upon the Lord, and it was evident in their lives and in the church, at least evident to Jesus. 
They had an extremely high opinion of themselves and their church, but they could not have been more far off base in who they thought they were. Because you see, Laodicean Christians are deceived Christians. Like their city, they boasted about who they were and what they had. And they thought every church should be just like them. Well, they may have had a great organization. There may have been other things about them that were great. But they were not a great church. Not in God's estimation. And that's the only estimation that counts. Jesus had a very different assessment. His evaluation of their true condition was 180 degrees from theirs. I mean, polar opposites. Look back at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, that means you don't know, you don't understand. You don't know, Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, look at that. They said they were rich, prosperous, and needed nothing, but Jesus said, no, you don't know. You have no idea. And he makes clear that they claim one thing, but the truth is absolutely another. See, a cloud of self-deception hovered over them. And the nature of deception is you don't know you're deceived. You don't know that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, what a contrast. The church at Laodicea exalted themselves above reality. When the whole time they were absolutely blind to their true condition, their true spiritual condition. Jesus said, you're wretched. It means miserable, unfortunate. It's a word that was used of ravaged lands and devastated countries. Jesus said you're wretched. You're pitiable. It means you're you're the object of extreme pity. I mean, you're just to be pitied. He says you're poor. And this word speaks of extreme poverty, like that of a beggar or a pauper. You know, this is a slap at, at a city that bragged of its wealth, commerce, and banking industry. Jesus says you're poor. You may have worldly riches. You may think you're spiritually rich. But the fact is, you're spiritually poor and lacking. He says you're blind. I mean, it's sarcastic. It's a dig at a city that prided itself on its eye ointment that was known throughout the world. Jesus says you're blind to your own true spiritual condition. You don't even see how you really are. And then he said you're naked. Of course, this is ridicule of a city that boasted of its famous glossy black wool. You're naked, Jesus said. Oh, you might produce a a fine black wool sold throughout the world, but before me, your spiritual condition is uncovered, and you stand before me open and naked. And he says, you know, there's nothing about your church and all of your works and all you do to commend. Not one thing. 
And they were like the emperor in the, in the Hans Christian Andersen story who was totally naked but had convinced himself that he had on a beautiful suit of clothes. That was the Laodiceans. Using imagery and illustrations that would hit them right between the eyes and right where they lived. Jesus exposed not their spiritual richness, but their spiritual destitution, deception, and desperate condition. They were desperate and they didn't even realize it. And loved ones, the church in this country is spiritually destitute, deceived, and in a desperate condition. And people don't even realize it. And how could there be such a vast discrepancy between how they viewed themselves and what the Lord saw in them? Well, obviously they're using two different standards of measure. The Laodiceans were measuring their church by worldly standards of success. But Jesus measures by a much different standard. He measures by a biblical standard. See, the church is not a country club. It was never meant to be a country club. It's not a country club operated for the benefit of its members. The church is not a performing arts center where people are entertained with drama and music and comedy. Though what goes on behind a lot of pulpits across this country every Sunday is comedic. Tragically, I saw a video clip this past week of things that go on and, and it was a list of seven or eight churches, the things that went on uh, on the, on the uh, platform by the pastor. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. It was like children's church has come into the sanctuary. Well, the church is not a country club. It's not a performing arts center. The church is not a political action group or a protest movement. And by that, I do not mean that we as individuals uh, are not to be involved politically. We should be. We should be very informed. I mean, we should uh, speak up and speak out and uh, vote and... Uh, Hey, we're, the church should be the, the moral conscience of the nation. But the purpose of the church is not to create a political action group or a protest movement. You see, loved ones, the church is the gathering of the redeemed. It's the gathering of the redeemed for the purpose of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ through prayer, through singing his praise, the giving of our tithes and offerings, the, the reading and preaching of God's word, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is to be a source of biblical truth so the believers may be equipped and edified so that they may go back home and, and out into the community where they live and go to school and, and work and recreate to be salt and light and, and to live out the Christian life, living in a manner, the Bible says, worthy of our calling. 
engaging the culture with the good news of the gospel as we have opportunity. And by this standard, the church at Laodicea was indeed wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked because they had become a comfortable, compromising church. A church that instead of engaging the the culture with the truth of God's word, compromised the truth and allowed the culture to set its agenda and dictate its activities. Listen, we're to engage the culture uh, with with the gospel, with, with the truth of God's word. I mean, just engage the culture. We're not supposed to uh, adopt or, or adapt our programs to the culture. We're not to allow the, the culture to dictate what goes on in the church. And we're not a subculture as believers. We are a counterculture. And because of what we believe, I mean, we are on a collision course with the culture. But that's okay. It's always been that way. Listen, have we forgotten that the gospel is an offense? Yes, it's the good news about what God has done for man in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us the preaching of the cross, in other words, the preaching of the gospel is an offense. It's an offense. And that's why people have so diluted it and compromised it and watered it down to make it more palatable. No. 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 And the Laodicean church was filled with people who Love to have it that way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. It was filled with people like Lot who wanted to experience all the culture had to offer but have heaven in the end. They were there because that's what they wanted. And what does Jesus think about that church? That kind of church, what does he think of lukewarm churches and Christians? Well, people may love a lukewarm church, but Jesus does not. Jesus does not. A church like Laodicea makes people comfortable, but it makes the Lord sick. And you see, we have such a hard time understanding that and comprehending that because, uh, you know, we, we have so desensitized to sin and the lukewarmness of the church. And so as we hear a message like this, what often happens is we sit in judgment of the person delivering it as opposed to letting the Word of God judge our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ, no one more loving and kind and gentle, always tender with sinners and the brokenhearted. But it's he who had the harshest things to say to the religious people of his day. And it's Jesus, love incarnate, who speaks these words 
to his church because the church is his. And he says, you don't even know your condition. You don't have any idea. And the condition you're in, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You see, that's how disgusting compromise is to Jesus. And so when anyone stands up and tells us about these things, it's like, oh, so judgmental. I can't believe it. We'll take it up with Jesus. He said it. The Laodicean church was half-hearted in their commitment to Christ. They had compromised the truth for the sake of comfort and had adapted to the culture instead of living as a counterculture. And their problem was not physical and economic, but spiritual. Their abundant physical and economic resources had dulled their sense of dependence upon God and the gospel. And Jesus called them to recognize their spiritual destitution, deception, and desperate condition so that they would repent and cease to be lukewarm. I mean, what a statement to hear from the lips of our Lord. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine sitting in church when that letter was read? And you wonder if the pastor didn't put off reading it for a few Sundays. Can you imagine? Well, here is a letter to our church from the Lord Jesus himself. And this is what he says. Though we have this very high opinion of ourselves, this is what Jesus says to us, you're spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. I wonder if attendance was up the next week or down. And perhaps some of you here this morning are thinking as you examine yourself, and that's always what we should be doing when we hear the Word of God, asking the Lord to show us and uh, you know, shine a light in our hearts and, and our lives. And so some of you here this morning as you're uh, thinking, you know, as you examine yourself that, you know, you know, you have God's blessing upon your life, you've got a good family, a good job, a really good income, you're, you're doing well, you're, you're prospering, don't really need anything. You feel much the same spiritually speaking. You know, nothing wrong with your spiritual life, nothing major anyway, nothing, you know, really pressing you need to change. You know, a few things here and there, but nothing major you need to repent of. You're just, you know, doing pretty good. Oh, you'll acknowledge you're not perfect, but, you know, overall doing pretty good, pretty righteous. But maybe your true spiritual condition on the inside where it counts and where only God can see is far different. I mean, could it be that Jesus has a completely different perspective? Could it be that a cloud of deception hovers over you? You know, that spiritually you don't realize 
your spiritual destitution, deception, and desperate condition that, you know, you really are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, we become addicted to mediocrity in the church. We've, we've become addicted to mediocrity and we, uh, you know, have, have allowed in all of those respectable sins and we've just become dulled to our true spiritual condition. Maybe in reality you're, you're very self-satisfied and self-sufficient. Well, maybe you're lukewarm. In your unguarded moments, how do you regard yourself? You know, what's the default setting of your self-perception? Jesus, the faithful and true witness, is faithful to tell us the truth about ourselves, just as he told the Laodiceans the truth about their spiritual condition. But the good news is that the Lord didn't stop with merely pointing out the problem. That would be terrible. He didn't just point out the problem. Now beginning in verse 18, he gives the solution. He gives the solution to their spiritual condition. And Lord willing, uh, we'll save that for next week. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.